truth lies in bedtime stories from see through news series one the story of gunbutter the only deep sea navigator in mongolia episode one fact fiction and mongolia I'm a journalist. I deal in cold, hard facts. I eschew fanciful mendacities. I reject elaborate circumlocutions. I scorn terminological inexactitudes. I get all the wonder I need from the real world. You can keep your fairies, your goblins and dragons. Having said that, the story I'm about to tell you is from Mongolia. Now, Mongolians like a good story, and when you're there, the act of separating fact from fiction can start to appear impolite, disrespectful, even cruel. You may not, until now, have given Mongolia much thought. It's proverbially remote and obscure. You're probably aware it's a very vast country with very few people. Maybe you know about their nomadic culture. You likely know that nomads tend to be mighty hospitable to strangers. Well, here's a fact. Mongolians are no exception. Once you see the landscape, it's easy to understand why. Mongolia is huge, landlocked, and mainly flat grassland steppe. In summer, it's green below the horizon and blue above. In winter, white and white. Imagine yourself after lonely weeks with no one for company but your immediate family and your livestock. Every time you step out of your gare, that's the felt yurt Mongolians call home, you see the same unchanging scene. You'd welcome a stranger, wouldn't you? No surprise, then, that nomadic herders enjoy nothing more than spotting a stranger on the horizon. In Mongolia, you can see a stranger coming an awful long way off. From dot to doorstep can take 20 minutes if the stranger's on horseback, an hour or more if they're on foot. Their expansion from speck on the horizon to life-size human forms a thrilling preamble to the main event, hearing their stories. Make no mistake, a stranger and the stories he or she brings is an event. They're rare enough in summer when the herds and flocks are rotated from one side of the horizon to the other in search of good grazing. In winter, when Mongolia hunkers down against the sub-zero temperatures with winds that freeze your piss before it hits the ground, a stranger is impossibly exciting. Here's what happens. The first person to spot them, usually someone on horseback, alerts everyone within earshot. The message is relayed, and soon everyone on shepherding chores is gathered by the little wooden door that protects the inside of the gear from the elements. Strips of yak jerky are cut and arranged on the best plate. A welcome drink of home-brewed airag, its fermented mare's milk, is poured into the best cup. Eventually, the stranger dismounts. Greetings are made, formalities exchanged. An invitation is extended. After a token refusal or two, the stranger is ushered to the place of honour by the stove, any murmured objections ignored. The fire is stoked. 
the air fills with wood smoke. To kick off the entertainment, a toast. Even the youngest children shooed and shushed to the fire's perimeter are permitted a sip of Irag. This treat is normally a big thrill, but now the children barely notice they're focused on every syllable emanating from the stranger's lips. What new story will the children be telling and retelling each other until the next stranger comes? It's almost story time, but first, some social triangulation, establishing connections and mutual friends. There are only a couple of million Mongolians, so it doesn't take long for any two of them to work out who they both know or are related to. My story took place before Mongolians had TV, radio, mobile or internet. Then, as throughout all Mongolian history before technology changed everything, strangers repaid their hosts in the only available currency, a good story. So, here we are, around the stove, throats warm with airag, mouths salty with yak jerky. We barely hear the sound of the horses shivering the snow from their flanks outside. Inside, grandmother, toothless and smiling at her spinning wheel, leans in, her wrinkles illuminated by the flickering fire. All ears turn towards the stranger. What yarn will they spin, weave and trade? So, you see, in a fairy tale world like this, why let facts obstruct a good story? In episode two, A Smart Kid, A Lake and A Boat, we'll hear how the story of Gambatar begins. Episode two, A Smart Kid, A Lake and A Boat. This story begins many years ago with a young man called Ganbatar. Like most Mongolians, Ganbatar only had one name. And like most Mongolians, he only needed one name. A few years back, Mongolia realized it could no longer rely on just one name in a world of computers and databases and identity documents. It might be obvious to neighbors from this area that you could only possibly mean this Ganbatar, but computers weren't so smart. The government gave all Mongolians a one-off chance to pick their own family name to make life easier for the computers. It didn't work because they nearly all chose to call themselves Khan, after their national hero, Chinggis Khan, who we know as Genghis Khan, so they had to abandon that plan. But our Gambatar grew up long before anyone had heard of a computer, in a time and place where there were plenty of names to go round. He grew up in the north of Mongolia, near the Soviet border. Unusually, as well as grassland, there were mountains and a huge lake. The mountains were famous for their wolves, and the lake was famous for its boat. It was the only boat in all of Mongolia. To young Gambatar, 
it was magic. He couldn't wait for the summer when his family would pack their gear, muster their livestock and move to their summer grazing area. They pitched their gear right by the lake, the other side from the mountains. On a still day, when the grass fell quiet, he could hear the sailors sing songs about their boat. It was called the Sukhbatar, after a communist hero known as the father of the Mongolian Revolution. Across the lake, young Gambatar caught the words from the air and sang along with them. We're masters of the Sukhbatar. We're masters of the blue roads. We're crossing the blue waters, steering our mighty vessel. For a young nomad boy whose world was grass and hooves, the sight of this boat on the lake was as mysterious as a dragon, a ghost or a fairy. Kambatar was a smart kid. He learned to read and write. He learned Russian. He passed exams. Local party officials spotted his talent. Official letters were sent. Before long, an official letter arrived from the far-off capital, Ulaanbaatar. It was from the Ministry of Agriculture, informing Gambatar he should report there for work. Gambatar was the first from his clan to achieve such an honor. Family and neighbors held a big farewell party. The week before he left, his three closest friends took him on a hunting expedition in the mountains, where he shot a fine wolf. At the send-off, just before he climbed into the cab of the long-distance truck that would begin his long journey to his new life in the capital, his friends presented him with one of the wolf's paws. One paw each, a memento of their last days together. For his friends, the wolf paw was a way to remember their distant friend. For Gambatar, it was a piece of home to carry with him. Gambatar placed the paw carefully on top of his spare set of clothes and clicked shut the little leather briefcase that was all he was taking to start his new life in the capital. His friend's eyes blurred with tears as they watched the truck's dusty plume diminish and finally disperse, leaving no trace of its passage on the horizon. But by then, Gambatar's eyes were clear, fixed on the road ahead. In case you thought this whole story was made up, this is the lake shanty we played at the beginning of this episode. Unless you think we're making all that up too. We'd understand if you did, and wouldn't take it personally. In fact, we know how you feel. As we've warned, fact and fiction are hard to separate in Mongolia in general, and this story in particular. For example, it's asking a lot of you to believe that the only boat in Mongolia is a tug. Before Gambatar's father was born, it had been hauled piece by piece across the mountains on horseback to the lake, where it was assembled by Soviet engineers. One day, the lake had a boat on it, and so it has been every day since. The Story of Gambatar, Episode 3 The Crisis Meeting 
Not long after Gambatar had started working at the Ministry of Agriculture, his boss made the short journey from the Ministry building to the Government Palace. It was only a five-minute walk, but he summoned the ministerial vehicle, he instructed the ministry driver to attach the ministerial flags to the front of the ministerial bonnet. He was, after all, the Minister of Agriculture, the third most powerful man in all of Mongolia after the President and Vice-President. Actually, he thought to himself as he settled back into the leather upholstery of the Zil limousine, the Vice-President was really just a spare. The Minister of Agriculture was really the second most powerful man in Mongolia. By the time he arrived, the main chamber of the government palace was already packed. He took his seat on the dais next to the president's empty chair. The president entered. Everyone stood and applauded. When the president thought he'd had enough applause, he gestured for everyone to sit down. The chamber, packed with Mongolia's most powerful leaders and wisest thinkers, fell silent. They all knew the reason for this crisis meeting, but no one knew the answer to their country's problems. The president wasted little time stating these problems. It had been hundreds of years since Chinggis Khan and his galloping warriors had dominated their entire continent, reaching the edge of Europe, and everyone knew how low their country had now sunk. Mongolia, though still vast, was trapped landlocked between two giants. It seemed their only role in the world was as a superpower separator, keeping the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China apart, a buffer state, a no-man's land of nomads, isolated, ignored, abandoned. Worse, the Jud had come three years running, winters so severe they freeze livestock solid, Horses, camels, yaks, cattle, sheep, goats, all had perished in their thousands, millions. Nomads without livestock become refugees, and the capital was now surrounded by a radiating spatter of gear, as desperate, destitute and starving Mongolians from all across the nation sought help to survive. The president asked if anyone had any ideas to solve their country's crisis. Then he sat down. The Minister of Agriculture felt he should stand and say something, but he couldn't think what. The silence grew. Then, from the back of the hall, a hand was raised and a reedy voice asked permission to speak. Heads swivelled to the back of the hall, pens hovered above notepads. When Professor Dalai spoke, Mongolians listened. Professor Dalai always had strange ideas, but was known for his vision, his ability to see what others cannot see. Maybe that's why his parents called him Dalai. It means ocean, and to landlocked Mongolians, the ocean represents all that's distant, mysterious, mystical and magical. The world beyond Mongolia's borders fascinated Professor Dalai. Every day, books, newspapers and magazines in all sorts of languages and all sorts of scripts were delivered to his office at the university next door to the Ministry of Agriculture. Professor Dalai would be their only recipient in all of Mongolia. He devoured these foreign publications daily. If one of them contained the answer, 
to their nation's problems, there was only one person in Mongolia who'd know it. Professor Dalai's suggestion astonished everyone in the room. Fish, he said. While our people starve, our rivers and lakes are full of food. Our land is blessed with rivers and lakes. If we learned how to raise fish, we would never go hungry. Now, if you've never been to Mongolia, you wouldn't know what a bizarre suggestion this was. Status, honour, wealth, calories are all measured by the hoof. Livestock is Mongolia's lifeblood, and meat and dairy, its diet. Mongolians could see the point to growing vegetables. You could feed them to your cattle. But fish? Mongolians see fish like we see flowers. Pretty enough, but not anything you consider putting in your mouth. But this was a crisis, and no one had any other ideas. Calling the meeting to a close, the president turned to the Minister of Agriculture, who immediately sat up straighter and tried to look even more solemn. Minister, said the president, choose five of your brightest staff and send them to Russia to learn the mysteries of fish farming. This, then, was how Gambatar's fate was sealed and his unique story set in motion. The Story of Gambatar, Episode 4 The Paperwork The moment he returned from the crisis meeting, the Minister of Agriculture summoned five of his staff to his office on the top floor. They were all young men. Four of them were the sons of rich, powerful families in the capital city. The fifth was Gambatar. Mongolia had the world's second communist revolution and had closely followed the Soviet model ever since. Power was centralized and jealously guarded by the party. Study abroad was a rare and precious privilege and the power to allocate this precious resource reaped rich rewards in the form of favours and bribes. The minister's calculations had started the moment the president suggested sending five of his brightest young staff to Russia to study fish farming. He was already doing very nicely from the sinecures he'd given the sons of five of the capital's richest families and saw this as a great opportunity to double down. By the time his limousine had finished the short trip, however, he'd made one minor compromise give four of the scholarships for this crazy scheme to the princeling playboys, but it would be prudent to send at least one person who wasn't going to treat it as some kind of holiday. Professor Dalai's crazy schemes had a habit of petering out once the party started implementing them, and this fish farming idea was the craziest yet, but better send at least one person with half a brain, just in case. He told the driver to wait at the entrance and that he'd be back down in half an hour. What's the name of that country boy who just arrived last year? He asked his secretary as he strode into his top floor office. Ah, yes, Gambatar, the boy from the lake. A few minutes later, Gambatar was one of the five young men standing in front of the minister's desk, hands behind their ramrod backs. The minister informed them of their strange but solemn task, swore them to strain every sinew for the benefit of the nation fed them some browsing rhetoric about being the new Mongol horseman following in the stirrups of Chinggis Khan, and then told them to start packing their bags. The president's order had been very public, and it would be prudent to be seen to take swift action. 
Another short limousine ride and the minister was exchanging a bear hug with his good friend, the Soviet ambassador. The ambassador had already heard the news and was delighted at the chance to put Mongolia even further in his nation's debt. He'd prepared five application forms, pre-signed and pre-approved, a prospectus from Russia's top institution for the study of all things fishy, and a litre bottle of what he knew was the minister's favourite vodka. A couple of toasts to the eternal fraternal bond of their two great nations, then the minister was back in his office. By now, his secretary had already gone home, so rather than delay a moment longer, the minister thought he'd fill out the forms himself. How hard could it be? To steady himself, he unscrewed his gift and poured himself a generous measure before starting on the first application form. When the minister's secretary arrived the next morning, he was surprised to find the minister's office door, which he remembered locking the evening before, open. He was about to call the security guard in the corridor when he noticed the minister was at his desk. He was in a deep sleep, slumped over a spread of forms, an empty vodka bottle at his elbow. Weeks later, the minister, now sober, posed for the photographer from Mongolian Pictorial Magazine. He stood on the steps of the Ministry of Agriculture, looking as presidential as he dared. On either side stood his five soon-to-be aquaculturalists. Gambatar was the extra body, and he only just made it into the frame. The photographer knew no rich and powerful parents would complain and made sure his four colleagues were shown in the best possible light. Then the minibus arrived to take them to the train station and their cross-continental odyssey began. Over the next weeks, without once crossing the sea, they travelled halfway across the world, days chugging across the familiar Mongolian steppe. Then what seemed like weeks trundling through the interminable forests of Siberia. Then, in faster trains, they sped through Moscow and beyond. They gawked through the windows, transfixed, as more cities and more buildings and more people and more vehicles than they thought possible flashed past. It had been days since they'd last seen a horse. Below the horizon was neither green nor white, but grey. By the time the five young men reached the Baltic port city with the Soviet Union's biggest institute for the study of all things fishy, they felt like they'd stepped off the edge of the world. The slate-grey sea stretched to the horizon like a nightmarishly turbulent grassland. The air tasted of salt and smelt of something unfamiliar and overpowering that they could only assume was fish. The next day, the five young Mongolians reported to the institute. It was matriculation day for the entire university and the vast sports hall was heaving with snaking queues of students from across the Soviet Union and beyond, waiting for their turn to hand in their documents and receive their student IDs. The five young men located the queue for foreign students and took their places, Gambatar at the rear. Word soon got round that five Mongolians had shown up, and this, of course, was a first for this particular institution. They shuffled forward, clutching their briefcases containing their application forms, passports and ID photos to their chests. These five young men from the land of the horse attracted many glances, some stares and a few sniggers. All they could do was smile hesitantly back and wish the queue would move faster. At last, they reached the front of the queue. History was made as the first Mongolian student presented his documents 
to the Ministry of Education bureaucrat who solemnly accepted them. He then proceeded to shuffle the papers and scrutinize each word, peering down his nose with his head tilted back. As his excruciating examination extended, more and more people nudged their neighbors and pointed towards the five dark-skinned, red-cheeked Mongolians waiting in line. Eventually, the official thumped a red stamp on the form. With neither a look nor a word, he handed the documents back. With one arm, he beckoned the next Mongolian forward, and with the other pointed to a group of young men standing under a sign saying, Course number 1013, Fish Farming. The first of Gambata's princeling colleagues stuffed his documents back into his briefcase and hurried to join them, as if fearing the official might change his mind. One by one, the painful process was repeated until only Gambatar was left. He clicked open his briefcase, set his wolf's paw to one side, and presented his documents. The same painful procedure. Shuffle, peer, thump, beckon, point. But he wasn't pointing towards his fellow Mongolians. The official was pointing to the next group along, the one standing under the sign saying, Course number 1012, Deep Sea Navigation. The Story of Gambatar, Episode 5, The Studies of Gambatar. Of course, Gambatar did everything he could to solve the clerical error that meant he was registered to study deep-sea navigation while his four fellow Mongolians were assigned the fish farming course they'd travelled across an entire continent to study at their president's behest. It quickly became clear that a small hour's slip of the pen wasn't so easy to overturn, at least for a poor man, from a remote province of a distant country with no political connections, favours to dispense, or money. He tried everything he could, patient explanation, head-slapping protest, man-to-man appeals to common sense, tearful pleas for compassion. All were met with unsmiling shakes of the head. The implacable face of communist bureaucracy was utterly unrelenting. Look at the paperwork, they said, pointing to the minister's writing on his application form. The four digits were slanting and stained with something spilt, but unmistakably read 1012. They'd hold up the university prospectus and point to course 1012, deep sea navigation. Gambatar may as well have tried convincing a yak to ride a donkey. His fellow students tried to intervene, but their connections didn't hold much sway the other side of Eurasia. He tried official channels too, of course. As soon as his initial attempts to join his four colleagues on the fish farming course had failed, he wrote a comprehensive explanation of his dilemma, addressed it to his boss, the Minister of Agriculture, and hand-delivered it to the impotent Mongolian plenipotentiary in Moscow. His formal appeal set in motion the administrative machinery of the time. Handwritten letters a long chain of command, the physical transport of documents over an entire continent, all lubricated, or rather impeded, by the bureaucratic sludge that seemed to be the glue that was the only thing keeping the world's first and second communist states, the Soviet Union and Mongolia, from falling apart. When it became clear nothing was going to happen quickly, the authorities told Gambatar he had to start studying or they'd revoke his student visa. So, 
while his four dilettante colleagues from the Ministry of Agriculture partied away, skipping the courses on aquaculture that Professor Dallai had identified as their nation's salvation, Gambatar began his five-year course in deep-sea navigation. He learned things for which Mongolian words didn't even exist. The law of the sea, naval architecture, ship safety and maintenance, sonar, maritime cartography, tide charts, fishing quotas. After a year, an official letter arrived bearing the seal of Mongolia's Ministry of Agriculture. It was from the minister. It was very short. It said there had been no error, that he'd been assigned this course for a special reason, and that it was not for him to question how he should serve his country. So, Kambatar continued his deep dive into deep sea navigation. He had no idea what the secret plan for him could be, or why he, of all people, had been selected for such a sensitive mission. He had some doubts about the explanation, but there was clearly no point in swimming against the tide. Swimming, in fact, was one of the many new skills he was acquiring during his first year of study. Remembering the sailor on the lake who was rumoured to be blessed with this superpower, he daydreamed that one day they would both swim in the lake. He'd smile at the image of the entire town gathered by the lake to witness Mongolia's only two swimmers performing this mythical act. He imagined the glory. His farewell party before he left for his job at the ministry would be nothing in comparison. Children present would pass on that story to their grandchildren. Truth be told, Gambatar was now having a ball. He felt like a horse untethered from a heavy cart after a long journey. The burden of bureaucratic responsibility lifted, Gambatar threw himself into his studies and the strange new world that had opened for him. His classmates from Angola, Mexico, Trinidad, Latvia, Nicaragua, would tease him, asking him how useful maritime charts and sonar would be when he returned home. Gambatar would just smile, make a joke about being happy to navigate from the top of a camel, and return to his studies. He was now spending time on actual ships, riding real waves on proper seas. North Sea salt encrusted his eyebrows, as they once were with snow and ice back home. He got his sea legs, instinctively balancing against the pitch and roll of the deck, as he'd once learned to adapt to the gait of an unfamiliar horse. In the evenings, drinking rum instead of airag, his fellow students would teach him sea shanties, and he'd respond with the songs he grew up with about horses and grassland and Chinggis Khan. On the rare occasions he opened his briefcase and saw the preserved paw, he could barely believe he was the same person who'd shot a wolf in the mountains of northern Mongolia, about as far from the sea as it's possible to be. He may not have been fulfilling Professor Dallai's dream of learning a new way to feed his people, but Gambatad was following his steps across Mongolia's landlocked borders, roaming and exploring the world beyond. And so it was that Gambatad, the boy from the lake, who'd spent his childhood transfixed by the only boat in Mongolia, became his country's only qualified deep-sea navigator.
In episode 6, Back Home, we find out what happened to Gambatar when he returned to the ministry with his unique qualification. Episode 6, Back Home. It was a fine spring morning in the capital. A light dusting of snow had fallen overnight, but green shoots were already poking through their white blankets. Gambatar breathed in a lungful of Mongolian air and paused on a particular step. Five years before, he'd had his photo taken here, beside four young colleagues and the Minister of Agriculture, proud emissaries, destined to bestow the gift of fish farming to a grateful nation. The other four had returned two years before. Not all letters from home had made it to Gambatar over his five years of study. This was understandable. One month he would be on a Baltic trawler, the next an Atlantic container ship, the next an Arctic cruise ship. But he had heard that whatever aquaculture expertise his four colleagues had acquired during their studies was now being squandered. Professor Dalai's vision of Mongolians introducing fish to their diet hadn't taken off. There'd not been another Zod winter since they'd left. Livestock herds had been built up again. The refugees had packed up their gears from around the capital and moved back to their grassland homes. The old Minister of Agriculture had taken early retirement, at least that was the official line. Some said it had been his cozy relationship with the Soviet ambassador that truncated his career. Others said that even though it had been successfully hushed up, he'd killed his own career, along with three camels and a yak, during his drunken 3am joyride in his official limousine. The new minister, by all accounts an unforgiving kind of man, had quietly closed down the fish farming department. He reassigned Gambatar's former colleagues to more familiar Ministry of Agriculture jobs. They were now supervising milk quotas, regulating meat processing, approving veterinary products. The only clues to their years of study abroad were the certificates of graduation displayed on the walls of their offices. You can say what you like about the Soviet Union, but they knew how to do certificate, with their bold red hammer and sickle seals and red felt frames embossed with gold writing. Gambata's own certificate was safe. Before setting out that morning, he tucked it under his lucky wolf's paw and clicked his little leather briefcase shut. As he walked up the steps and approached the security guard's desk, Gambatar swung the briefcase, surreptitiously jaunty. Though naturally shy, Gambatar was secretly looking forward to showing his qualification to the guard, who was from the same place up by the lake with the boat. Everyone he'd met since his return three days ago had begged to see it. It's not every day you get to hold in your own hands the first ever international certificate in deep-sea navigation awarded to a Mongolian. Those who'd had the privilege had already told the story to others who were now telling it to everyone they met. But the guard was unfamiliar. Another reminder that much had changed in the five years Gambatar had been away. The new guard nodded dismissively at Gambatar's open briefcase before returning to the sports pages of his newspaper. 
As he clicked his briefcase softly shut, Gambatar smiled to himself. Facing him, on the front page, was an article about the return of the country's first qualified deep-sea navigator and a photo of him with his certificate taken at the airport. Maybe the guard did already know about it after all. Gambatar turned and continued his way up the wide concrete stairs all the way up to the minister's office on the top floor. The new minister kept him waiting for an hour. A modest man, Gambatar didn't take offence. An hour later, he began to feel a premonition of worry that his triumphal return may have peaked. After another hour, he was pretty much sure of it. When he was finally shown into the new minister's office hours later and showed him his certificate, he knew it. What the hell have you been doing? Wasting your time and our money studying deep-sea navigation? thundered the new minister. What use are you to Mongolia? What possible job is there here for a deep-sea navigator? At that moment, Gambata's hope evaporated like ocean spray. He reached for his briefcase, looking for the previous minister's letter, telling him it was all part of a greater plan that would be revealed to him on his return, before he suddenly realised this would only make things worse. All Gambatar wanted to do, then, was go home. As he replaced the certificate and letter in his briefcase, he caught sight of his lucky wolf's paw. Of course. Uh, minister he said. I could join the crew of the boat on the lake by the Soviet border. Maybe my experience would be of some help. Far from placating the new minister, this infuriated him further. The boat had been navigating the lake absolutely fine for nearly a century. It was never out of sight of the lakeshore and get out of my sight. The following week, Gambatar opened the door to his new office. A cramped, bare, dusty room at the end of a remote corridor as far away from the new minister's office as it was possible to be. It hadn't been used for years. Gambatar opened its one tiny window, opaque with grime, to let some air in. A shower of dead insects covered his shoes. Outside, melting snow, a birch tree, an empty bench. After a minute or two staring at the bench, Gambatar sighed and turned back to settle into his new office. Having been given no job, all he had were his personal possessions. He moved the dusty chair from the dusty desk, opened his briefcase and arranged its contents on the room's dusty shelf. There was his life, all in a row. The wolf's paw his internationally recognized certificate in deep-sea navigation, a photograph of him with his international shipmates smiling on a trawler on a distant sea. Gambatar picked up the wolf's paw in one hand, the photograph in the other, and his eyes filled with tears. He walked to the window, opening it wide. Gambatar closed his eyes, started to sway from side to side, as if on a rolling deck. 
he began singing one of the sea shanties he'd learned on the other side of the world. The story of Gambadar, episode seven. Professor Dallai goes for a walk. Far from Gambatar, Professor Dalai also had his eyes closed. But there, the similarities ended. For one thing, instead of Gambatar's desolate, dusty, dim cubbyhole, Professor Dalai's office was huge, airy, crammed with books, newspapers, and periodicals. For another, the professor's eyes were closed not in despair, but in delight. Professor Dalai was having another vision of Mongolia's future. In a small clearing on his desk amid the teetering towers of papers and books was a newspaper in a strange script from a foreign land. The article that had prompted his reverie was already circled in red pen and he was holding the scissors with which he was about to cut it out to send to the president's office. There was no need to copy it as he'd already gone over it a dozen times and had virtually committed every word to memory. It was another lifeline for Mongolia to rescue his country from what, in one of his more famous poems, he'd called our landlocked isolation. Professor Dalai was used to being ignored, even ridiculed, but he, in turn, ignored his critics and was undeterred by his failures. He'd already filed away the fish farming fiasco under To Be Continued. He'd been searching for a solution that wasn't hostage to fickle weather patterns, though he was now starting to read disturbing articles that suggested these may become fickler in future. And now, here it was, under his nose. Not only was Professor Dalais the only nose in Mongolia that could have sniffed its potential, the brain behind the nose was the only brain in Mongolia that could now plot how to exploit it. Professor Dalai opened his eyes. This would require a walk. He strode over to the bust by the door, removed his white beret from Karl Marx's head, selected his thinking walking stick, and set out to process it all. Everyone at the university knew about Professor Dalai's campus wanderings, and they kept their distance. Not that he would have minded any approach, he was always happy to talk to anyone, but when Professor Dalai bore his thinking walking stick and distracted look, Everyone knew whatever his latest crazy idea was, he was in the process of forming it. And this morning, though he was the only person in the world who knew it, the professor was reaching around in the dark for a hidden key to a secret door that could open Mongolia to the rest of the world forever. After a while, meandering at random around the university's perimeter, he felt ready for a breather. Professor Dalai dusted off some lingering snow from a bench by a birch tree, sat down, placed both palms on top of his thinking walking stick, his chin on top of his hands, and closed his eyes. After a while, he opened his eyes with a start, as if waking from a dream. He cocked his head, scanned his surroundings, and then saw a small open window, opaque 
with crime. This was no dream, thought the professor. It's not uncommon to hear singing in Mongolia. Its people need little excuse for a song. But this sounded different. Its rhythm and cadences didn't evoke galloping horses, soaring eagles, or waving grassland, but something undefinably different. Professor Dalai went up to the open window and saw a sad-looking man, eyes closed, fingering a wolf's paw in one hand and grasping a photograph in the other, singing this strange song to himself under his breath. What song are you singing? the professor asked. The shanty stopped abruptly as Ganbatar opened his eyes and saw who was addressing him. Oh, my apologies, professor. I didn't realize I was singing out loud. It's a song I learned from some friends on my travels. What friends? What travels? asked Professor Dalai. Come and sit with me on this bench. Tell me everything. Three hours later, the professor and Mongolia's only deep-sea navigator were still in intense discussion. Both men looked amazed and excited. The Story of Gumbatar, Episode 8, Back in the Government Palace. The official vehicle of the Ministry of Agriculture had its flags on again. The driver held the door open. The minister respectfully gestured for Professor Dalai to get in first. And then, just as respectfully, gestured for Gambatar to follow. Once he'd seen the minister into the limousine, the driver put the zil into gear and made the short journey to the government palace. When the three men arrived, the chamber was once again full of Mongolia's most powerful leaders and wisest thinkers. The occasion this time, however, was not solemn, but celebratory. On the dais, beside the president's seat, were three chairs and a lectern. The minister, Professor Dalai and Gambatar sat in the three chairs. Thick, heavy medals on red ribbons embossed with gold hung around each of their necks. Then the president stepped on stage. He went up to the lectern. When the president decided he'd had enough applause, he gestured for everyone to sit. The room fell silent. My fellow Mongolians, he intoned, we mark the passage of this historic act of parliament by honouring the people who made it possible. Three days ago, we passed the act, the details of which you all, and indeed all Mongolians, are now intimate with. An hour ago, it was my privilege to bestow the Order of Chinggis Khan on the three patriots to my left for their extraordinary efforts in compiling the bill and bringing it before us to approve. What they have achieved will open a new door for our nation, permitting us once again to return to our historic role, roaming free across the globe. This time, 
We come not to conquer, but to trade. And this time we come not on horses, but on ships. I call on Professor Dalai, now recipient of the Order of Chinggis Khan, to deliver a few words. The professor rose, placed his white beret on his chair, and took the president's place at the lectern. My fellow Mongolians, he said when the applause had died down, thanks to your passage of our maritime law bill, we now have a path ahead to rejoin the rest of the world. Should we follow this path, our unhappy period of landlocked isolation is over. Another pause for applause, and then from his breast pocket, the professor removed and unfolded a creased newspaper article in a strange script in a foreign tongue, encircled in red pen. This document, which will now reside in our national archive for all time, marked the start of this journey, but only because it joined a path already taken by my fellow recipient of the Order of Chinggis Khan, Ganbatar. The chamber burst into applause. Gambatar melted into his chair, overcome with pride and embarrassment. Three years ago, continued the professor, this article from the Communications Department of the United Nations arrived at my office at the university. It announced the unanimous ratification of the International Law of the Sea, this law, approved by all nations on earth, grants every sovereign state the right to exploit the sea and to have access to the sea, whether or not it has a sea border. You now all know its implications. This law means landlocked nations like ours enjoy the same rights as any state with a sea border. We may be unfamiliar with terms like sovereign, extraterritorial and plenipotentiary, but it means that we're a train or road link away from access to a port in any neighbouring country. In so doing, we can shake free from our neighbours' suffocating embrace. We can freely exchange our goods around the world without the intervention of foreign powers. We can register foreign ships. We can qualify for valuable fishing quotas, which we can sell for a handsome profit. Who knows? One day, we may even have our own deep-sea fishing fleet. The room erupted with applause and cheering. Professor Dalai beamed as he rode the wave. As it subsided... He continued. But in order to access all these riches, he said, we needed to pass a national maritime law. For Mongolia, this was far from simple. To write a maritime law, we needed to know things no Mongolian knows. Professor Dalai looked over at Gampatar and held out his arm towards him. We needed to know the law of the sea, naval architecture, Ship safety and maintenance, sonar, maritime cartography, tide charts, fishing quotas. We were blessed that our nation had one citizen who possessed not just these secrets, but who had also tasted salt in the air, seen fish bigger than a house, and, he paused and exchanged a smile with Gambatar, knew how to sing sea shanties.
Episode 9. A Great Man, a Lake, and a Boat. So, how did I come to hear about the incredible story of Gambatar? Well, if you're still struggling to believe his story, telling you my story about how I heard his may not help. Let's just say I met him in the capital shortly after the passage of Mongolia's maritime law. I, I filmed an interview with him in his office at the Ministry of Agriculture. It wasn't the dusty little cubbyhole I described in part six. Um, it was far less palatial than Professor Dalai's overflowing office at the university where I'd filmed the day before. Gambatar's current office was spacious enough, but Spartan. It had a computer. I filmed him, tapping in some Cyrillic characters with two fingers for some introductory footage. I couldn't work out how to prevent the screen flickering in my camera viewfinder, something to do with different hertz and phases in the local power supply. There was only one item decorating his office walls, which I used for the interview background. It was a poster of a wolf. A couple of days after that, Gambatar and I took a flight together to the town by the lake in the north. It was his first trip home in years. As we came into land, he pointed out the lake, and, as we descended, the pier. We could make out the distinctive profile of the Sukhbatar, the only boat in Mongolia, alongside a couple of barges. I didn't mention the barges, did I? Well, to be fair, I, I did mention she was a tug. To tell the truth, I was a bit distracted at the time, as by now we were getting lower and lower, and there was still no sign of any runway or airport building. Then, we simply landed. On the grass. We trundled to a halt. When we jumped down from the plane, the only thing that suggested this was an airstrip was a row of waiting jeeps and horses, ready to convey the passengers to wherever we were going. Over the next few days, I filmed Mongolia's only deep-sea navigator inspecting the only boat in Mongolia. We went on a brief lake cruise with some South Korean professors. I got to know the Sukhbatar 7 smartly uniformed crew as I filmed their daily lives. At Gambatar's suggestion, for the wrap party, I invited the sailors and their families to a real Mongolian barbecue. They lit a fire, butchered the half lamb I'd bought, heated some stones in the embers, then placed meat and stones in a milk churn to stew. While it cooked, we drank beer and vodka. Someone had brought along a portable tape player, and we all danced around the fire to the sound of that summer's hit, a disco song about Chinggis Khan. Then, by the lake, beneath the mountains, as dusk gathered, I filmed the sailors singing one of the lake shanties they'd written about their tug, the Sukhbatar. You may remember the lyrics from part two. We're masters of the Sukhbatar. We're masters of the blue roads. Crossing the blue waters, steering our mighty vessel.
if you're finding all this hard to swallow, by all means search online for The Mongolian Navy, All at Sea. It's on the Litmus Films YouTube channel, and even if I say so myself, remains the definitive oeuvre on Mongolian naval history. I've heard much has changed since I filmed it in 2000. Foreign visitors expect a beautiful lake like that to have pleasure vessels for hire. The Sukhbatar is no longer the only boat in Mongolia, though it does remain its only tug. Gambatar and my visit coincided with the big summer festival, Nadam. Mongolians gather to watch six-year-olds race horses bareback over 50 miles, archery competitions and wrestling tournaments. Gambatar disappeared during the festival, though. He said something about a trip to the mountains with some friends. When the day of our return flight to the capital came, Gambatar was there, though. He carried the little leather briefcase that was all he'd brought with him and which he'd taken with him on his travels on the high seas. At the area of grassland that constituted the airstrip, we found a group of people revving up their jeeps and pulling the girths on their horses. Apparently, there'd been a last-minute change. The plane wasn't going to land here today, but instead at another place a couple of hours' drive away. When they wrote it down, it spelled moron, though actually it was pronounced morun. By this time, I'd been in Mongolia long enough to accept this news with the same cheerful indifference everyone else displayed. We set off across the grassland in an informal convoy of jeeps and horses. I was squeezed into a back seat next to Gambatar. As we bounced and jiggled our way towards Moron, Morun, I signed language to Gambatar, asking if he'd had a good time with his friends in the mountains. Gambatar smiled broadly and pantomimed shooting a rifle. He then clicked open his little leather briefcase and showed me what lay on top of his spare set of clothes. Next to the wolf's paw he'd taken with him the first time he'd left the lake was a fresh one, still crusty with dried blood. One, acquired many years ago as a young man yet to make his mark, had accompanied him and his dreams around the world and across the seas. The other, just acquired as a national hero, Mongolia's only qualified deep-sea navigator and architect of his country's first maritime law, he seemed to treasure as much as the Order of Chinggis Khan medal it lay beside in his little leather briefcase. Pause for thought. In episode 10, Coming Clean, we'll try one last time to separate fact from fiction as we make a final effort to sort out the true bits of the story of Gambatar from the fibs. The Story of Gambatar Episode 10 Coming Clean Look, sorry if you spent the last nine episodes wondering if I'd been pulling your leg the whole time. After all, I had a whole draft of part nine in which I'd claimed to have heard Gambatar's story in the place of honour by the wood stove, throat warm with airag, mouth salty with yak jerky while horses shivered snow from their flanks outside and all that jazz. 
In the end, I decided to go with the story about filming Gambatar for a documentary on the grounds that at least you'd be able to fact-check that if you were sufficiently bothered. It's hard to know whether you're happy just to settle back and be spun a yarn or if you're really exercised by this story's veracity. In part one, I made clear that the story of Gambatar is a fictionalized version of a true story. Some bits are made up, others are true. Now, I know which bits are true and which I've made up. I'm a journalist, that's my job. Your challenge, I suppose, is to sort out the truth from the lies, like a, a panel show game. I could just honk a horn whenever I'm about to tell a porky, or ting a bell when what I'm about to say is well-sourced enough to have got past the fact-checking team of the New York Times. But even this would have been hard to actually implement. How can I know which bits you care about when it comes to fact or fiction? To be honest, there are a few bits where even I'm a bit hazy whether they really happened or I've just filled in some gaps. In any case, objective reality is one thing, our perception of it another. Ask ten people from the same town to draw a map from the library to the train station, not only will you get ten different maps, some will be mutually unintelligible. Then there are the non-binary problems. How much detail should I go into? How hard should I try to prove what I'm claiming is true? We could have a whole other suite of sound effects to indicate the degree to which I'm certain about certain facts. How about an elephant's trumpet for a cast-iron fact? A pub cheering a waiter who's just dropped a plate for a single-source assertion. A sarcastic, slow handclap for something I'm pretty sure I overheard some bloke telling someone else over the phone on a crowded train. To adopt a more nautical metaphor, appropriate for the story of Gambatar, which bits are the jetsam, deliberately cast overboard by a person making a conscious decision? Which bits are the flotsam, remnants of past accidents, unaccountable, untraceable? But behind all this lies the biggest question. Does it matter if this part or that part or the entire story is true or false? Or to be even more precise, why does this particular point matter to you right now? Do you see my dilemma here? Take the lake shanty. You can hear it's a bit ragged. Maybe you picked up a fire crackling in the background. Even if you don't speak Mongolian, and if you did, you probably wouldn't be asking any of these questions, you must admit the lyrics sound pretty authentic. All fakeable, of course. But would I really go to all that trouble just to pull a prank? And what would be the point of fooling you? I mean, search the internet for a 2001 documentary called The Mongolian Navy, All at Sea, by Litmus Films, and you'll hear the self-same story, with the lake shanty right at the top. You'll see the smartly uniformed sailors singing it by a campfire by the lake. Later on in the film, you'll even see Gambatar himself and hear him telling his story, if you believe the subtitles, or speak Mongolian, that is. But even though that film was uploaded years ago, it could still be part of an elaborate sting of uncertain motivation, a bit like F for Fake if you've seen that Orson Welles documentary. Or was it a documentary? Then you might also stumble across another Litmus Films film about the ukulele string harvest, clearly a load of hogwash. So what can you conclude from that? 
Look, the only way I know to explain all of this to you is to tell you another story. It's the story of the tallest woman in Mongolia. It's much shorter, but I heard it from the same person who first alerted me to the existence of the Mongolian Navy, which is how I met Gunbatar. I could tell you my friend's name, and you could then search for him online, but the point I'm trying to make here is... Well, let me try to make it. This friend of mine was a photojournalist living in Beijing. He was there when, having been the world's second communist revolution to succeed in 1923, Mongolia became the world's second communist revolution to fail in 1991. Under communism, journalist visas to Mongolia were hard to come by, and once you got there, reporting was heavily supervised. My friend wanted to be the first foreign photojournalist to visit the country and report on it freely. Before he left, he tried to research his trip by trawling through back copies of Mongolia Pictorial magazine in Mongolia's embassy in Beijing. Amid the generic pictures of bumper harvests, impressive heavy machinery and bemedaled generals inspecting troops, he found one photo that amused him. It was captioned, The Tallest Woman in Mongolia. It showed a woman, in traditional Mongolian dress, standing on the grassland. There was a blue sky above the horizon, green grass below, and no other point of reference in the entire photo. For anyone not an expert in Mongolian grass species, she could have been anywhere between four and nine foot tall. A Mongolian journalist was interpreting and helping my friend arrange this reporting trip. Uh, my friend mentioned this photo during one of their phone calls. Ah, yes, I know that woman, said the local journalist. By now, my friend was accustomed to this kind of response. She doesn't live anywhere near where we're going. My friend said that was fine, he'd only mentioned it in passing, and it was really only the caption of the tallest woman in Mongolia that had intrigued him. Weeks later, well into his reporting trip, my friend found himself, as he had every morning so far, bouncing and jiggling across the grassland in a Soviet jeep. He'd quickly stopped bothering even asking about their destination. Within a few days, it had become clear that his diligent pre-departure research had been a total waste of time. In Mongolia, nothing was ever as you expected, but what you found instead was way more extraordinary than you could ever have imagined. The week before, they'd set off to take a photo of a horse race in which six-year-old jockeys rode 50 miles bareback. That evening, they returned with a roll of film containing photos of smartly uniformed sailors standing to attention on the deck of the only boat in Mongolia. So it was only after three hours of bouncing and jiggling when their jeep approached the first gear they'd seen for 20 miles and started to slow down that he asked his interpreter about today's destination. Oh, didn't you say you wanted to meet the tallest woman in Mongolia? His interpreter replied. By now, my friend knew better than to say anything. Instead, he reached for his camera bag, removed his notebook and wondered what today's surreal adventure would turn out to be. The family had, of course, spotted them as soon as they appeared as a speck on the horizon and were all standing in front of their gear, beaming. The welcome committee consisted of beaming Mongolian men, beaming Mongolian children and beaming Mongolian grandparents. Missing, however, was a Mongolian woman of the age of the woman in the magazine photo, beaming or not, tall or not. As my friend got out of the jeep and stretched, he wondered if the whole tallest woman thing would turn out to be another false peak on the grassland, a fork in the road leading to another randomly remarkable but unrelated story.
He asked his interpreter if this really was the family of the tallest woman in Mongolia. Oh, yes, he replied. This is definitely her family. But my friend wondered if he should just let events unfold, but couldn't resist stating the obvious. There's no tall woman here. Oh, she must still be inside the gear, came the confident reply. Hmm, that's possible, thought my friend, as they approached the beaming welcome committee. Arrivals by jeep turned specks on the horizon into full-sized humans faster than horseback. Inside the gear, maybe yak jerky was still being cut into strips and laid out on the best plate. Maybe home-brewed airag was still being poured into the best cups. Maybe the stove was being filled with fuel. Yes, a puff of white wood smoke suddenly appeared at the gear's chimney, the only cloud in the sapphire blue sky. By now, my friend was used to Mongolian greetings, the younger person grasping the forearms of the elder person, and they rapidly worked their way through the welcoming line. Amid the formalities, his interpreter must have mentioned the object of their mission. Everyone laughed as they raised their hands, palm down above their heads, nodded and pointed inside the gear. The children began calling out, Eek! Eek! which my friend by now knew was Mongolian for mother. The little wooden door that protected the gear from the elements swung open. A woman, unmistakably the same one as in the photo, crouched as she emerged outside. She, my friend, and my friend's interpreter now formed a triangle outside the gear. The rest of the family, now appraised of their guest's mission in coming all this way from across the ocean just to meet one of their family, respectfully retreated to form an audience for this momentous event. Adults and children followed every move, every syllable, as if they were breaking in a particularly dangerous skittish horse. They hadn't even drunk a drop of Eirag, but this was already one hell of a story. My friend said to his interpreter, Look, let me know when you think we've done enough of the formalities, but whenever you think the time is right, can you just confirm with her that she really is the tallest woman in Mongolia? The interpreter nodded and spoke to the woman. It seemed everyone was keen to dispense with the formalities now the nature of the visit of this foreign journalist had been revealed, as the woman's answer was brief. After weeks in Mongolia, my friend needed no interpretation. Team meant yes. My friend thought carefully about his follow-up question, then said to his interpreter, Look, again, I'll, I'll leave it up to you how delicately you want to put this, as I don't want to cause any offence. Maybe say something like, my foreign friend comes from a place with very many very tall women. Uh, he, he says you're tall, but you're not, like, tall. The interpreter nodded and launched into a lengthy address, and from the body language, my friend deduced he was doing a good job of softening any potential blow to pride or risk of offence. It seemed to work. Her reply was concise rather than terse. She says she completely understands what you mean. She agrees that although she's tall, she's not like tall. Like spectators at an archery competition anticipating the next arrow, the eyes of interpreter, the eyes of the woman and the eyes of the entire family in the audience now turned towards my friend. Let me think how best to ask this, he pondered a moment. The shyest child in the audience, forgetting her shyness, 
pushed to the front. Look, she seems to be taking this very well, so if you think it's okay, why not just come out with it and ask her directly if she really thinks she truly is the tallest woman in all of Mongolia? The interpreter nodded. This time, his question was much briefer. But not as brief as the woman's reply. Now, everyone's eyes were back on my friend, anticipating his reaction to the translated response. The interpreter spoke. She says, no, probably not. If you are disappointed with this story, my apologies again. I'm still not making my point. If you thought it was all just a shaggy yak story, that might be true. But it's a true shaggy yak story, in broad outline. Remember, I told it in order to illustrate the whole point of the story of Gambatar. If you'll forgive a further stretch, and at the risk of dragging you too abruptly from the magical world of Gares, Iraq and Mongolian sailors, I'd even argue it's the whole point of our entire human story. You might imagine all our recent technological advances would have narrowed the gap between fact and fiction, or enhanced our capacity to tell them apart. Instead, the internet appears to be amplifying it. Our capacity for coming up with new ideas far outstrips our capacity to change the way we think. It turns out that having all the evidence, all the facts, all the truth available at the click of a mouse hasn't made us more likely to embrace it. We turn out to be even more reluctant to even recognize the truth. A good story tells us something we weren't expecting, but only up to a point. Stray into the realm beyond revealing what makes us feel comfortable, and we don't like it so much. We want a proper story with a happy ending for the good and a satisfactory comeuppance for the bad. Have you noticed how we're always among the goodies, never one of the baddies? I said we accept stories revealing something unknown, that pretty much defines a good story, but I also said only up to a point. My point is that this point is the whole point. Look, you and I haven't met, I don't think, even though it sort of feels like we have by now. I don't know the limits of your particular storytelling comfort zone. I'm just guessing at the point beyond which the exotic becomes the uncomfortable. I'm taking a stab at the, the challenging, the inconvenient. Does not knowing for sure whether Gambatar even exists, let alone whether he really led anything approaching the extraordinary life I've been telling you over the past hour, bother you? Does the fact that you still don't know the height of the woman my friend met in centimetres, feet and inches, let alone her ranking among all female Mongolians, still feel to you like an unscratched itch? What if there were a story bigger more important, more all-encompassing than every story we've ever told to each other put together. A story that's already destroying all that we find familiar, all that we value and aspire to all over the world. A story that will, must, continue to get much worse, much quicker, unless we do something to change it right now. Not a story, then. A tragedy. A tragedy that with every passing day has fewer light moments diminishing redeeming features, shrinking prospects of satisfactory resolution. A tragedy that's so real it's always going to be there when we wake up in the cold light of day tomorrow, a little worse than it was when we went to bed today. And what if it were in our power to change this story, this tragedy? But first, we need to sort out the truth from the lies. 
If we were all living in a world with that kind of story, how would you go about telling it? If you think you might be interested in that kind of story, look for anything to do with see-through news on any social media platform. You'll find we have many different ways of telling this story, from superhero drawing competitions to video games, podcasts, bleeding-edge AI projects, local newspaper review projects, pretty much anything we think will engage anyone for one moment. But all these stories are telling the same story, the most important story we've ever had to tell ourselves. Thank you for listening to the story of Ganbatar, the only deep-sea navigator in Mongolia. The series was written, narrated, and produced by Sternwriter. Audio production by Samuel Wynne. If you enjoyed the story of Ganbatar, why not try series two of The Truth, Lies, and Bedtime Stories? It's called Betrayed, a tale of Christmas spiritual pollution. The Truth, Lies, and Bedtime Stories is a see-through news production. See-through news is a not-for-profit social media network with the goal of speeding up carbon drawdown by helping the inactive become active. For more, visit seethroughnews.org. Thank you for listening.